Hello, you're listening to the sixth episode of the hashtag Create Your Earth Life podcast with Janessa Staples. Today we will have a guest on. His name is Ryan Monahan, and he is a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. We discuss functional medicine, functional health, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, also known as SIBO, heavy metals, parasites, MTHFR gene, the importance of the sauna, and the importance of detoxing your body. We talk about depression, leaky gut, Hashimoto's, meditation. He talks about his story of what encouraged him to become an FDN practitioner. He also gives a lot of great advice on what you can do right now at home to keep yourself healthy and to keep your gut clean because um, if you don't know, now you will know, your gut is very, very important and is directly connected to your brain and it helps with your mental health. If your gut is a mess, then your mental health likely is going to be a mess. So I learned a lot from this episode and I hope you do too. Enjoy. No, I think it's okay. You can just introduce yourself. Okay, awesome. Well, hey, uh, you know, thank you so much, Janessa, for for having me on the podcast. Always good to talk to a fellow health nut. And (laughs) I'm always more than excited to talk about health and functional health and nutrition and to, yeah, spread the good word about optimizing your health with diet and lifestyle um, because it's certainly something that completely changed my life. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's changed my life as well, eating eating healthy and taking care of my body. What are you? What do you do? What's your title? Yeah, so I am a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, which is kind of a mouthful, right? <laughs> but what I essentially do is help people to get to the root of their chronic health conditions. And not only that, but I help to provide my clients with a set of tools that they can use to remain healthy and stay healthy for a lifetime. So I like to say that I educate, that I don't not medicate. <laughs> and, um, and what I mean by that, you know, is that, um, yeah, again, that, that education piece is really important. So when I'm working with clients, there's a, there's a heavy component of almost like a mentorship where I'm not just kind of breezing through, say, a set of lab results and say, you know, take take these supplements and you'll be good to go. There's a a heavy emphasis on explaining the biochemistry and the mechanisms and correlating that with their health history and their symptoms and really putting together all these disparate or complex clues or pieces of the puzzle for them in a way that maybe they've never experienced before. So I think that one of the really important pieces of the functional approach is to spend time with people. Um, And I I think that's something you don't get in conventional medicine. And there's no shortcuts, really. There's There's no way around spending a lot of time with people and really trying to understand every aspect of their health because there is no one size fits all approach, right? We have to take this bio individualized approach with people. Absolutely. It sounds very similar to working with an acupuncturist, even though you don't do like needles and stuff, I'm guessing. Is that right? Correct. Right. I'm not using acupuncture as a modality, but there's certainly a lot of overlap and certainly also a lot of overlap with being like a naturopath or even being a chiropractor. You know, chiropractors now are kind of more merging with the world of functional health, functional medicine. And, you know, I often tell people when they ask me what I do, like if I want to give them a quick explanation or like an elevator pitch, I'll say that I'm kind of a cross between a naturopath and a health coach, right? So I actually do have the benefit of being able to order functional labs. So we're looking at things like stool testing, Dutch hormone testing, SIBO testing, heavy metal testing, and so on and so on. But at the same time, I'm not diagnosing anything and, you know, we can certainly expand on that uh, because that's kind of a nuance that I think 
is is important to discuss this idea that you know diagnosing sort of implies that there's sort of a, like a fixed permanent condition that doesn't necessarily have a root cause, right? So were I even to be a conventional practitioner or a licensed physician, you know, I wouldn't even be interested in diagnosing because for one, when you diagnose someone, you're basically just kind of labeling them like, okay, you know, I'm going to wave my wand and say that you have IBS. It's like, okay, uh, I have irritable bowel syndrome. Like, I could have already told you that. You're, all you did was describe the symptom to me. My bowels are irritable, right? Mm-hmm. So that totally fails, though, to describe what the underlying cause or, or the mechanism is. And oftentimes, there are multiple underlying causes, not just one, right? And I think also receiving a diagnosis can get us stuck in in sort of labeling ourselves and and it can lead to sort of self-defeating mindsets if we think, okay, I have this condition now and it's like this permanent state, right? But we know that nothing is permanent in the body. Everything's constantly changing and constantly in motion. And diagnoses actually really just describe some kind of imbalance or dysfunction underneath the surface. And in my opinion and in my experience, those imbalances or dysfunctions can be corrected for uh, with, you know, a, a fine enough investigation, a deep enough look into the health issue. Wow. Yeah. How often do you see people with high um, heavy metal levels? Yeah, so I would say that I think that to some degree we all carry some some amount of heavy metal burden. It really depends on a number of factors. For one, some people may have certain genetic factors which may inhibit their ability to detox as effectively. So we may have all heard of, for example, the MTHFR gene, which is the gene responsible for helping us to synthesize methylfolate. And there's a number of reasons why that gene can be inhibited Aside from a genetic defect, even, you know, diet and lifestyle plays a very big role on that. But that does represent sort of um, a handicap, in a sense, for for being able to effectively detox as effectively. If you're not, if you're, if you have some genetic predisposition where you're not methylating as effectively, and that's causing you not to detox from things like heavy metals from your liver, you know, that's that's one of these critical pieces or one of these clues that I was mentioning earlier, right? So that being said, you know, I might run some uh, heavy metal testing and just because heavy metals don't show up on a test doesn't mean that they're not there. They could just be a non-secretor. They could be sequestering those heavy metals in their tissue. And that's why it's so important as a practitioner to get a really thorough intake, to really understand someone's history, to really understand the subjective component, right? And not just treating the lab testing, right? And I think that even some functional medicine doctors are guilty of this, of just treating the test paper and not really understanding the history of the person. So just to provide one example, if someone has a mouthful of mercury fillings of dental amalgams, I'm going to probably assume they've got a pretty high burden of toxic metals in their system, even if the lab testing is suggesting otherwise, right? So again, that's where that correlation is really critical and and comes into play. How often do you see the MTHFR gene in people? I see that probably about 50% of the time, which actually matches up with the statistics that half the population has at least one copy, meaning that they would be heterozygous for the MTHFR mutation. And, you know, for that reason too, that's, that's, um, I think that MTHFR, although I was using that as an example, um, at the same time, it's been a little bit overhyped and people see a genetic report and they say they have an MTHFR variant and they might like freak out and think they're a mutant. 
Um, or they might assume that they immediately need to take methylfolate or methyl B12, methylcobalamin, just because they have this impairment in their methylation cycle. Um, I wish it was that simple, right? But we can't just kind of jump to these assumptions without looking at functional methylation status. So we want to look thing, look at things like serum B12 levels and folate levels. We can also cross-reference with methylmalinate, which is a, the gold standard for B12 testing through a urine organic acids test, right? So uh, we can also look at homocysteine levels, which is a functional marker that can help us assess methylation status. If, if homocysteine is elevated, then that can be a clue that methylation is under functioning. That being said, I know I just kind of threw out a lot of technical jargon really quickly, but I always tell people something that I think is uh, overlooked, but a really important point, that if you took two people, one with an MTHFR genetic variant or defect or SNP, whatever you want to call it, and then you took another person without that genetic variant, okay? And then that person with the, with the genetic SNP that has the MTHFR variant is eating a nutrient-dense diet, they are meditating, they're getting exercise, they're sweating out toxins in, a, in an infrared sauna, and you know, so on and so on. And then the other person who does not have the MTHFR gene, but they're smoking cigarettes, they're eating a lot of processed foods, they're getting to bed after midnight, they are living a sedentary lifestyle, not exercising, not getting out in the sun. The person that's gonna be better off by far is the one that has the actual genetic variation, but is doing all the diet and lifestyle stuff to protect themselves, to work around that limitation. So there's a common saying or aphorism in the functional world in relation to nutrigenomics, which is that genes are like the gun, but the environment is the trigger. So that's a long-winded way of saying that, look, like, don't worry too much about this genetic stuff. To kind of get back to my original point, it's, it's overhyped, and you're going to be far better off spending your time buying organic and local produce and meditating and going in the sauna than you are spending hours and hours trying to understand these genetic or biochemical pathways and, you know, trying to supplement your way out of it, right? So we have to remember that supplements are just that. They are meant to supplement a healthy diet and life, lifestyle. They are not a panacea. They are not a cure-all, and they're not a replacement for, for optimizing diet and nutrition and lifestyle. Wow, that was a lot of great information. Why do you say specifically that they should be using the infrared sauna or can it be any sauna? It can certainly be um, any kind of sauna, you know, as long as you're sweating out toxins. I'm certainly not an expert on the topic of saunas. It's one of those things that I've, I've researched on an on, off, on and off again basis. I know that the infrared light spectrum does provide some additional benefits uh, in addition to just merely sweating out toxins from heat. Um, and, you know, some of those, to my knowledge offhand, include like anti-aging benefits, um, can help to, you know, get a little deeper at the cellular level to help detox from things like mold toxins and heavy metals and all that. Um, but there's there's lots of great research out, out there on the topic. Um, but yeah, offhand, definitely not like an expert on the topic, but I know that there's some you know, added benefit to getting that infrared spectrum. Okay, awesome. So let's rewind back a little. What inspired you to become a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I would say it was actually my own journey through illness. And I think that's the case for a lot of people that end up becoming functional practitioners. In 2012, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's after about a decade of searching for answers. 
And I had visited more than 40 practitioners to try to get to the root of my health issues. And no doctor had ever run a thyroid panel for me, had never suggested taking a look at thyroid function. So it, it wasn't until visiting a doctor that was also licensed in traditional Chinese medicine that I actually finally uncovered the issue. And at this point, I was really at my rock bottom. I was probably sleeping for 12 hours a night uh, and even still had zero motivation or energy, would sometimes lay in bed almost the entire day. I was extremely depressed and that kind of spiraled into shame over my symptoms and you know, isolating myself from friends and family because I just didn't know what was going on with, with my health. And in addition to that, I also had a, um, a, a, a really, really tough time with chronic allergies and asthma. And when I say chronic allergies and asthma, I mean that it was so bad that it, it was really to the point where I would be sneezing for like an hour straight. Like it's hard to even describe. I almost call it, call it like a spasm or like a sneezing fit. There's really like, it's really like nothing to compare it to. So that's kind of the best way I can describe it. Um, but it was like uncontrollable bouts of, of sneezing and itchy red eyes um, and, and wheezing and asthma that would very often like wake me up in the middle of the night. And in addition to that, was also dealing with, with weird skin lesions and skin rashes. I was only going to the bathroom like every three days, which is definitely not healthy. You know, I was, I was really, really backed up. So at, at one point, honestly, like it had crossed my mind that maybe I had some mystery illness and I was dying or something, which sounds dramatic, but I was in pretty bad shape and I just, you know, had no idea what was going on. And the conventional medical approach, unfortunately, really failed me. And I found through my experience uh, working with clients that there are millions of people that are falling through the cracks of the conventional medical system. And I'm not here to bash conventional medicine. You know, I think that conventional medicine excels at emergency care. Like if I break my arm, take me to the emergency room. Don't take me to the witch doctor, right? <laughs> to the herbalist. But for anything chronically related, depression, anxiety, allergies, asthma, gut dysfunction, and uh, you know, acid reflux, uh, all these kinds of kind of chronic symptoms, I think that's really where the functional approach really does excel. So... Yeah, after having received this Hashimoto's uh, diagnosis, I still had yet to take this kind of journey into functional medicine. What happened was I started on Synthroid, which is the conventional medical approach for, for addressing hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. And I found that I felt great at first, actually. Like it was life-changing, really was. I woke up it was just, it took one day to wake up and feel like a completely different person. I woke up right at sunrise without an alarm. My brain fog and depression like immediately lifted. And the unfortunate thing was that was only short lived. So after I want to say about six months, a lot of the symptoms started creeping up again. That's when I started doing my own research and investigating um, into all different kinds of areas of health from using diet to optimize thyroid function to using, you know, supplements and other lifestyle interventions. And that became kind of a, a passion and, a, and an obsession. And the path to becoming a functional practitioner kind of chose me. And after sort of a year or two of doing all this self-investigation, I decided that I wanted to take it to the next level. And that's when I started looking around at different programs. And ultimately, I was very attracted to the FDN approach and the FDN ed education, particularly because the program teaches you lab interpretation 
And, you know, I, you know, I'll be honest, I wanted to be able to interpret my own lab work and to kind of biohack my own body and to really have a, a very, very deep understanding of what other kind of issues might be going on that were hidden from view to look at things that maybe conventional medical practitioners were not looking at. My mindset at the time was that something, something would cause this. It just didn't make sense to me that, okay, you have Hashimoto's, there's nothing you can do about it, and you're gonna be on Synthroid for the rest of your life, and you know, other than that, just go about your life as usual. That just didn't make sense to me. You know, I, I intuitively felt that everything has a cause, everything has a mechanism behind it. And I wanted to know what that was. I wanted to find out for myself, and I wanted to become my own health advocate and I realized that no one was going to care about my health as much as I did. Absolutely. So what do you do to treat Hashimoto's for yourself? Or what have you revealed after testing yourself and digging deep? Yeah, that could definitely be another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so where do I start? Um, so... I hesitate to, you know, just like the word diagnosis, I hesitate to use the word treat because, mm -hmm. you know, treatment, again, implies there being some kind of uh, permanent diagnosis and, you know, that we're living with some kind of uh, disease. So and it's, it, I know it sounds like kind of nitpicky, but it is like a subtle mindset shift to get people away from thinking about things in terms of diagnosis and treatment. Rather, I like to think of, of supporting the body and restoring function, right? So when there is, so to add to that, what I'll say is that I often say that symptoms are not the problem, they are the result of the problem. So from the conventional perspective or within that paradigm, we are so used to treating a symptom. The problem with that is that if we treat a symptom which may just be a surface level problem and neglects to understand what's going on beneath the surface. So to give you a quick little visual, symptoms might be like the branches of the tree, but the actual underlying root causes would be the literal, the roots of the tree. And the conventional approach is to treat those symptoms. But we're gonna run into problems there because if you're treating the symptom, you're neglecting to address what's actually causing it. So either your symptom, your main symptom or health complaint is gonna get worse, or the symptom might just, you know, the tree might grow a new branch somewhere else. You might end up with another symptom, right? So it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole, right? Where we're constantly just chasing our symptoms. So that's another mindset or paradigm shift that I try to walk through with my clients that we're actually not really interested at all in chasing symptoms. Because what causes anxiety or what causes allergies or what causes gastrointestinal distress in you might be, I might have those same symptoms, but it might have a totally different set of causes, right? Mm -hmm. So I, like many other people, got stuck chasing symptoms for many, many years. And it was a huge light bulb moment for me to experience this paradigm shift and to start looking at, at those root causes. So that all being said, and, and having that out of the way, you know, some common root cause, well, the first place I would usually look at when investigating a thyroid condition or Hashimoto's which of course is the autoimmune component of, of thyroid disease, and we can talk about that more. The first place I'm gonna look at is the gut, is gut health. And like Hippocrates said, around 400 or 500 BC, all disease starts in the gut. So even you know, 2,500 years ago, you know, we were aware of the health of the microbiome and how, how critical that was. So, this Harvard researcher by the name of Alessio Fasano, he basically came up with this really brilliant model for understanding autoimmune disease and said that there are three components, like a three-legged stool, basically. There are three 
conditions that must be present in order to develop an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's. One of those would be a, a pre-existing you know, genetic predisposition. The next would be some kind of environmental trigger. And then the third would be intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And this model of understanding is actually really promising because even though we can't do much to change our genetics, we can remove those triggers. And, and by doing so, we can heal and seal the gut lining, right? So we are trying to, when, whenever we're trying to reverse or coach down autoimmunity to restore function, what we're looking to do is to investigate for some of these common triggers that might set off leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And so when looking at gut health, I'll often see my Hashimoto's clients be dealing with things like H. pylori, which is a bacterial infection in the stomach. I will see parasites very commonly. So for example, blastocystis hominis, giardia, uh, entamoeba coli, uh, some of these, and there's a handful of others. I will often see candida overgrowth, which is a form of yeast, and uh, SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, there's definitely a number uh, of other infections that can be present. But basically, you want to start by cleaning up the gut because there's, there's a, it's a lot more complex than this, but just you know, for the sake of time and, and just to make things kind of simple for our listeners, what, what's going on when we have these pathogens in our gut is that they can trigger the lining of our gut to become permeable, meaning that the contents of the lumen or the inner contents of the gut can st actually start leaking through the gut lining. And now that's a problem because you have undigested food proteins, you have toxins, you have bacteria, and whatever else is you know, in, in the contents of your gut leaking through into your bloodstream. And that causes your immune system to go on red alert. And basically what can happen in the case of autoimmunity is as your immune system is attempting to handle all this crap, like literally speaking, <laughs> you've got crap in your bloodstream. Um, as, your, as your immune system's trying to handle all this, your body's own tissue can get caught in the crossfire. So if your immune system is trying to a, say attack or remove a, a, a gluten molecule, well, your thyroid tissue might also get in the crossfire and then you develop autoimmunity against the self. And that's what autoimmunity actually means. It's auto meaning self immunity. And, and what's going on is your immune system starts attacking your own body. So there, there are a number of mechanisms by which that can happen, but the important thing to, to understand is that all autoimmune diseases start with this, this leaky gut process as a prerequisite. So the, the approach to healing any, any autoimmune disease, not just Hashimoto's, is actually to, to work on healing the gut lining. Wow. Do you find often that people have parasites? I do. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say it's pretty common. I, I'm not sure if I've ever looked through all the, the GI stool testing I've run and, and come up with a percentage. But just off the top of my mind, I would say it wouldn't be far-fetched to say that, you know, 25 to 30 percent of the clients that I have have, you know, have some kind of parasite activity. Now, that's not to say that Parasites are always problematic. So I just want to emphasize here that, you know, as freaky as it might sound, we're all dealing with all kinds of critters and organisms in our gut, from yeast to bacteria to viruses to parasites. And those all make up normal, healthy uh, components of our microbiome. And so it's not so much the parasite that's the problem per se, it's the immune system's response to it, which triggers the inflammatory response or in some cases an autoimmune response, right? So 
it's important to mention that I'm only working with symptomatic clients. So if someone's immunocompromised, then yeah, we probably want to look at parasite activity and throw some herbal protocols at that person to eradicate the parasite. But if someone's otherwise perfectly healthy and asymptomatic, you know, that doesn't mean we have to, you know, go chasing bugs and, and go, you know, killing off parasites and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, and, and one way we can actually cross-reference to see if the immune system is responding or reacting to these parasites is actually by looking at some blood chemistry. And this is where I, I think that the test don't guess model of functional health is so, so important. And it, and it forms the cornerstone of my practice because we really need to look at a handful of labs so we can cross-reference different markers and form a larger impression. So like I can't make a house without bricks, right? So without looking at some lab work, I can't really tell what's going on in, under the hood in, inside of someone's body. So when you're looking at functional blood chemistry, you can look at all the different differentiated white blood cells. And one of those forms of white blood cells are eosinophils. And if, and if eosinophils are elevated beyond say about 4% of the, the concentration of white blood cells, that's often an indication that the parasite is causing that person to become immunocompromised. So that's just one way of many, many, many ways where you can actually see how different labs are talking to each other. So when I'm looking at the functional blood chemistry, I'm also looking to say, to see, okay, is this person immunocompromised? Is their immune system actively trying to fight something off that might be causing them to be symptomatic? And then we can look at something like a GI map and say, okay, yeah, they've got a parasite, they've got candida. You know, in some, in some cases, in more severe cases, when people are, are really sick, I'll see like a full house. I'll see candida, parasites, H. pylori, and then it's like, okay, we got a lot of work to do. We got to really, you know, clean up the gut and do some work. Yeah. I was wondering, I heard that parasites can like live in other parts of your body, not just your gut, but like your brain. Is that true? I think it is. I think it is true. And I know Dr. Klinghart talks about that quite a bit. And there, there are ways to address that. You know, um, I don't want to get too deep into protocols or anything like that. Cause I don't, I don't want people going to try to like self-treat themselves at home or anything. Okay. Um, but you know, I know that, um, I've used an herb with a lot of success called mimosa pudica, which has become more popular. I feel like, especially just over the past few years in the, in the world of parasites and that, uh, substance or herb, uh, mimosa pudica, it actually helps to break down something called mucoid plaques, which are basically more or less like a type of biofilm that organisms or pathogens can produce these, it's almost like glue, it's kind of how I think of it, like mm -hmm. parasites or other organisms can produce this extracellular matrix to basically form a habitat around themselves to, to adhere to certain tissue or, or to adhere to the mucosal barrier. So that's when we're looking at successfully addressing the removal of these pathogens, that's, it, it almost goes hand in hand with also addressing these, these biofilms. And so there are certain substances and certain herbal approaches which can help to, to remove parasites from places like the brain. I really like Cellcore Biosciences product line. They have a product line of, of anti-parasitics that I think are, are really effective for removing parasites, not just from the gut, from all, but also from the brain as well. Wow. So can we talk about SIBO for a little bit, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Would you like to explain what exactly it is? Yeah, so SIBO, as you as you hit the nail on the head, there is is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So when you hear that for the first time, you might go, "Okay, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to have like 
tons of bacteria in our gut. Like that's the microbiome, right? Mm -hmm. And well, yeah, that's partially true. Like we are just as much microbe as we are human. So we have anywhere between 150 trillion to possibly even 10 times more bacterial cells in our body. We have more bacteria in our body, in fact, than stars in the known universe, which is kind of a crazy factoid to think about. <laughs> but that being said, um, most of the bacteria in our gut should actually be contained to the large intestine, not in the small intestine. That's not, not really where we want the most of, most of our bacterial uh, activity to live. So we actually should have about 100,000 times more bacteria in the large intestine. And so for a number of reasons, our small intestine can become overgrown or colonized with small, with, with, uh, with bacteria. Um, one of the most recognized causes or mechanisms behind that is an impairment of the, migra the migrating motor complexes in the small intestine, which are basically a bundle of nerves that are responsible for that cleansing wave in the gut that basically helps move food and bacteria down into the small intestine, right? And that cleansing wave should normally happen every 90 to 120 minutes um, or about 11 times per day. But with someone that's experiencing SIBO, that cleansing wave may only occur about three times a day if those nerves have been compromised for one reason or another. And we can, we can discuss some of the reasons that can occur. So you can imagine, right, if that cleansing wave is, is inhibited or it's, or it's halted, that carbohydrates, when we're you know, eating our sweet potatoes or butternut squash or whatever it might be, they will just kind of sit in the small intestine because they're not, the, the, the nerves aren't moving things along. And when carbohydrates just sit in our small intestine, they will then become feasted upon by bacteria. And those bacteria will ferment those carbohydrates and then they will proliferate and their numbers will grow, right? And we eventually end up with an overgrowth, right? So that can become problematic because once you have an overgrowth of bacteria, they can cause an excess of either hydrogen and or methane gas. And those gases are what are responsible for causing the typical symptoms of SIBO. So someone with a SIBO condition might experience things like gas, bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, uh, and even things like anxiety or depression, believe it or not, because the largest nerve in the body, which is the vagus nerve, connects from the gut to the brain. And so hence there's this whole concept of the gut-brain axis. And there's a saying that goes along with it, which is fire in the gut, fire in the brain. So in functional, from the functional perspective, we believe that everything is interconnected. So you can't really separate or divorce what's going on neurologically in terms of mood, brain fog, that sort of thing. From what's going on in the gut. So one thing that can cause this impairment to the migrating motor complexes is actually um, any experience of, uh, at any time of food poisoning. And when, when you experience a bout of food poisoning, that can result in the release of something called CDTB toxin. And to make a long story short, what can happen is that the immune system will try to attack or address that toxin. And it will also attack these cells in the small intestine called the ICC cells. So it's, it's actually a case of molecular mimicry where that toxin looks very similar to those ICC cells in the small intestine. The problem with that is that those ICC cells act like an electrical pacemaker to activate those nerves that I mentioned, the migrating motor complexes. So that's actually one of the more common potential causes of, of SIBO is about of, you know, so someone might have traveled to Central America and have gotten, you know, a parasite or have gotten a case of transient food poisoning or E. coli or something. And then they came home 
And then they say, you know, I've never, you know, I never felt the same since that trip to Honduras or whatever, right? And so that might be a clue in someone's history. Okay, they've had food poisoning. Hmm. Okay, they also have a lot of gas and bloating and diarrhea. Like, okay, there's a good chance this person might have SIBO, right? Um, so, you know, that's um, definitely a potential clue uh, and might lead us to look for something like that. Also, we just want to look at gut health in general. Like if we see other kinds of infections, like we talked a lot about parasites, parasites would actually take precedent. They would actually be considered a primary infection. So we would actually want to address the parasite first over the SIBO. So this is a common mistake. You know, if you're going after SIBO first, but you've got parasites in the system, those parasites, what can happen is they actually give off exudates, which is basically like parasite poo, right? And the bacteria can feed off of those exudates or the, the substrate from the bacteria, from the parasites. So unless you're addressing the parasites first, you're not going to be, you're not going to be addressing what's causing the SIBO. You know, as you can see, these things can get, you know, pretty complex and, you know, that's, that emphasizes again, the whole uh, necessity for running a handful of labs and looking at all these different aspects because there's these conditions like SIBO, and this is kind of the, the takeaway here, is that any kind of symptom or condition will often have more than one cause or multiple causes, and we can't just simplify things. So the more I've been doing this work over the years, the more I've been further entrenched in this understanding or viewpoint that something like SIBO might be in part caused by a parasite. It might also, uh, low hydrochloric acid or stomach acid might also be contributing to that. Um, if someone has gallbladder dysfunction or they don't have enough bile flow in their body, that can also contribute to, to SIBO. If someone's had a history of extensive antibiotic use, that can be a risk factor for SIBO. Uh, oral contraceptives can, contri can contribute to SIBO. Um, and there, there's, there's a half a dozen other contributors, but it really does require a holistic and comprehensive approach. So ho hopefully that wasn't more than you were asking for, but that's my, that's my spiel on SIBO. <laughs> that was actually really amazing um, because I had SIBO a couple years ago and a lot of that information I did not know. Um, so thank you for sharing. What is something you would tell listeners that they should do every day to keep themselves healthy? A couple of things. Yeah. So first of all, you know, start with mindset. You really have to, I think, I think it's important. What I've definitely had to learn the hard way is to, to be your own health advocate, right? So like I said earlier, no one's ever going to care more about your own health than you do. And so, you know, we can't wait for someone to save us. You know, we, we have to take our health into our, into our own hands. And I, I really do feel strongly that health is so foundational. Like we do everything with our body, right? Uh, and if, if we're kind of disconnected or disassociated from that, we might forget. But if, we, if our health isn't in place, then our relationships may suffer, our finances may suffer, our career may suffer, our mental, emotional, spiritual health may suffer. And so it's so it's so encouraging and so rewarding to do this kind of work because by getting people to that next plateau, yeah, even if that means having a little more energy, a little more cognitive functioning in their brain, like less brain fog, then that's like that becomes a launching off point for being able to reach another plateau of health, right? Like once you get over that first hump, it becomes a launching point for starting that business or getting pregnant and starting a family or whatever it might be. And it's really we get to be a part of that and help people along with that. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, kind of that mindset piece. I, I really love to talk about mindset when it comes to health because I think it's so important. And I think that, you know, a lot of things that we can do for our health, even before you go and hire someone like myself or a functional practitioner, there's a lot of things you can do for free with your own body. 
that um, are going to, you know, be of great benefit. So, for example, you know, getting 20 minutes of exercise a day, you know, whether that's yoga or taking the dog for a walk or buying a set of kettlebells, you know, like, or, you know, you know, whatever modality works for you. Um, but you don't have to have, you know, an extensive or, or expensive, uh, you know, gym membership to do some push-ups and do yoga at home. You know, you can hop on YouTube and there's going to be, you know, a, a hundreds of thousands of awesome free videos and tutorials out there, right? Um, it doesn't cost anything to, to get to bed, you know, at sundown or before 10 p.m., you know, which is going to help to optimize our adrenal health. Um, you know, it doesn't cost anything to sit down and meditate. And meditation has mountains of, of data and evidence behind it now showing physiological benefits for reducing all kinds of inflammatory cytokines like NF-kappa-beta, interleukin-1-6. You know, we can get into the whole alphabet soup of inflammatory markers, but you don't need to be a biochemist to to know or to feel the benefits of just meditating even 10 or 20 times, a, uh, 10 or 20 minutes a day, right? Mm-hmm. Great apps out there like Headspace and Calm, right? That people can get free trials for and, and get it, get started with that. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that is within your hands, right? That you can, you can start today um, before getting all fancy, right? <laughs> and so believe me, like I'm just as much of a fan as running functional tests as the next person. Like every time a test result comes in, even it's for even if it's for a client, like I get like super excited, like it feels like it's Christmas for me. Cause I just like, I super geek out on looking at lab results. But um, yeah, you know, just look at simple ways you can optimize your diet. You can optimize sleep, exercise, reducing stress cutting out people from your life that don't support you, and then in turn surrounding yourself with love and community. If I were to just start with one place, like one simple thing, and I can tell you this, like if you're gonna work with me as a client, I'm gonna ask you to do this anyway, so you might as well start now. And that would be to cut out the processed crap, you know, cut out processed food. That's one of the easiest, simplest things you can do, cut out the Doritos, cut out the Snickers bars, cut out the Dr. Pepper, like it's not doing you any favors. And um, you're going to feel the benefits within weeks, if not days. Um, So yeah, you know that you don't have to pay a health coach hundreds or thousands of dollars. You know, I'm telling you right now, cut out the cut out the processed food. Awesome. Yeah, I love all that advice. All right. So where can listeners find you? Yeah, so they can find me on the web at themindfulnutrivore.com, which is my website. And at themindfulnutrivore.com, you will find under my services tab that you can schedule a 20-minute free consult with me if you just wanted to get to know me and ask me some questions and maybe see if we'd be a good fit and to see how you know running some labs might help you to, re- to restore your health back to normal. And... If uh, you can also you can also Google Ryan Monahan FDN or FDNP that's another way to find me and find my website. I'm probably more active on Instagram though, um, so you could also find me there at the Mindful Nutrivore. So same as my website, and those would probably be the two two easiest places to find me. Yes, I found you on Instagram, and I love your post. You have a lot of great information there. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm making it a goal this year to to post more content um, because I, I, I just want to, you know, continue to spread valuable information and even to, you know, to dispel some disinformation out there because there's a lot of bad info, info out there too. And, you know, I want to make sure that, um, you know, we're helping people along on their path to, to wellness. Yeah, I think for this podcast, listeners will get that kind of information about the MTHFR gene because what you said and what I knew, I worried about it a lot, Um, was stressing about it. But then when you said that someone that doesn't have it and isn't taking care of themselves and someone that does have it and is taking care of themselves is better off, it's just refreshing. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of scaremongering out there about, you know, like, oh my God, MTHFR, like, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm doomed, right? And like, what, you know, I'm gonna have to, you know, like, it's gonna make me more likely to develop an autoimmune disease or whatever. It, it's just, it's just overblown. And it look like if half the population actually has MTHFR, which is a statistical fact, then you know, everyone would be walking around with all these you know, chronic health conditions. <laughs> so yeah. uh, um, I, I really do hope, hope people get something out of that because it's, it's definitely, so long as you are living a healthy diet and lifestyle and you're working on trying to in, make small improvements every day, then it's really not much to worry about. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a total pleasure. And I'd come back anytime and talk about functional health stuff. So it's awesome. My, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, yeah. have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the hashtag create your earth podcast with myself, Janessa Staples. If you could give me a review or rate my podcast, that would be wonderful. That helps for other people to find my podcast. And that also helps me to continue to evolve and keep this podcast evolving. And also, if you want to message me, if you have any questions, if you want to be on the podcast, if you know someone you want to be on the podcast, please feel free to contact me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is evolving period writer period Janessa. J-E-N-A-S-A. Until next time.